Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. Welcome to part two of our final instalment of this podcast for now, at least. Thanks again for listening through these past four months. Watch this space for something new for the Irish Times. In the meantime, we'll continue to cover aspects of the coronavirus outbreak on our other podcast in print and on irishtimes.com. In our final instalment for Confronting Coronavirus, podcast producers Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan have asked a handful of Irish Times journalists to take a look back at the last couple of months and how the pandemic has played out. Yesterday we heard from Simon Carswell and Jennifer Bray. Today it's the turn of sports reporter Maliki Clerken, whom we'll hear from a little bit later, and Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary. Naomi has been watching Europe's response to COVID-19 closely and she's not always liked what she has seen. I think it's actually massively disillusioning, um, the whole experience of watching people whose job it is to react to these situations appropriately fail to react appropriately. Oddly enough, the very first day that I started my job as Europe correspondent, coronavirus was the very first story I think I wrote about. Bonjour à tout le monde et bienvenue à la réunion de presse quotidienne de la Commission. It was the end of February, and I remember sitting in the the daily press briefing that the Commission holds. Turkey had begun to sort of encourage people to try and make a break for the border into the EU. There was also Brexit stuff going on, of course, and this was consuming really a lot of the attention and bandwidth of the EU institutions. But at the same time, events were already getting out of control in Italy. And I was sitting among the Italian journalists. They were asking questions like, do you realise what's going on in Italy? We and the health authorities were unable to locate patient zero. We still have not identified this, so it is difficult to make any predictions about what the diffusion may be. For me, there was this strange sense of dissonance because I was covering the EU institutions and they were publicly at least making out that nothing was changed. There seemed to be this belief that it couldn't happen here. It was unfeasible that the borders would be closed. It was unfeasible that travel would be curtailed in any way. I mean, there were descriptions in English language reporting of, you know, dead bodies on the streets in Wuhan. And, you know, if something can kill a Chinese person, it can kill an Irish person. It, it was described to me by an Irish guy who works in disaster zones as the, um, the tsunami syndrome. Like when tsunamis come in, there's this syndrome where People don't believe it's going to hit and people kind of hang around and don't get out of the way, strangely, because they it's something to do with human psychology where there's this delayed reaction was until events forced it to happen. It was considered impossible. (laughs) People who were in positions of power and authority seemed to cling to whatever belief would justify the need not to change, not to adjust what they were doing, anything that would justify a comforting story that they need not react urgently. They seem to cling to. I mean, I spend quite a lot of time in the Netherlands and the Dutch press was full of justifications about why the Dutch people didn't need to worry about the virus. Uh, This was when it was killing people at a serious rate in Italy. 
There were op-eds by Dutch journalists saying, you know, Italians are different. They're disorganized. You know, they um, Dutch people, by contrast, are are orderly people who wash their hands and do as they're told. And, you know, we won't be affected in the same way. There's all this kind of self-delusion that went on. One of the major myths that persisted for a terribly long time was um, that you have to be symptomatic to spread it. We are constantly looking at this data and we're trying to get more information from countries to truly answer this question. It still appears to be rare that an asymptomatic individual actually transmits onward. And this was this was very obvious from really early on that it was spread asymptomatically um, by air. Okay, there was there was research coming out of China very early about asymptomatic transmission, including a case of um, a Chinese woman who uh, went to Munich and spread it to into Germany that way. The implication of that that it can be spread asymptomatically is very. It means that there's going to have to be a big change to public life because it means you can't just tell people to monitor their own symptoms and if they have a cough to stay at home because they w- may not have a cough, they might not have any symptoms. And that means you need to have some sort of blanket measure or some sort of you know quite intrusive measure to contain it. Something will need to have to change beyond telling people to stay at home if they don't feel well. That was not something that people were woke up to for a very, very long time because I think it was an inconvenient truth. You really need to just focus on the individuals that are symptomatic. It really does depend on, on symptomatic uh, presentation. What I find really strange is why all this information was available to me, but not available apparently to people in government. You know, I'm like, I spend a few hours on Twitter every day and that's basically, you know, the, the relevant information um, got to me. I saw a map online recently which showed like, um, the spread of the potato from South America and it took like something like 30 years for the potato the adoption as a crop to move from London to Oxford which isn't very far it seems like you know in some ways things have sped up but they haven't sped up enough you know there was an, a slow there was something that slowed the spread of information um, from country to country and it was ridiculous to see how it happened so for example you had country after country very slowly realizing that asymptomatic transmission was an issue. And, you know, I saw it happen in one country after another. And I had to say, like, but we've already gone through this. You know, this was already this already happened in Italy. Weren't you paying attention? We have to we have to go through this whole revelation again, this whole public debate again. It happened with the herd immunity thing. A vaccine for coronavirus could be at least a year away. But the government seems to be trying to engineer the same effect with something called herd immunity. The expectation is that enough people will become infected with the virus that they develop immunity. This would stop it spreading widely and protect the vulnerable. The objection was raised that this would mean the deaths of an awful lot of people and that anyway there wasn't much evidence, there wasn't any evidence, that immunity to this particular virus even existed and if it did, for how long it would last. Um, And so then Boris Johnson had to kind of walk back this herd immunity thing and then literally the next day, Mark Rutte in the Netherlands made a public address to the nation in which he said that they were going to go for gr- herd immunity. It was absurd. And then he had to go through the whole press cycle of walking it back, just as Boris Johnson had done in the previous days. Um, so, yeah, strangely insular while integrated, Europe was revealed to be. All we needed to do was look at the countries that successfully began um, combating the pandemic from the beginning, like Taiwan, which, again, this evidence was publicly available from very early on. And they, one of the first things they do, did was ramp up face mask production. 
um, to a crazy amount. I mean, millions and millions of face masks and ensure that everybody was wearing one publicly. They had they were able to do that because they had had the experience of SARS and there was also a kind of cultural education on face masks um, that was pre-existing. But as we've seen in countries like France and Italy, you don't need to have that. You know, people can learn, but they do need to have the correct information. In countries like Ireland, it's not alone in this. Uh, the message was extremely muddled. Um, for what reason, I'm not sure. Uh, but I mean, if in this is my own personal opinion, but I think that where the, the government erred um, was not to make reopening contingent on widespread adoption of face masks. Because essentially, if everybody makes a face mask, if everybody wears a face mask, it is much easier for normal, normal life to resume. <laughs> so it allows the lockdown to end. And that is a message that for some reason was not really got out to people. Now, why was that? I don't know. From the beginning, there were warnings that people wouldn't use them properly. They'd they'd contaminate themselves by touching the outside of the mask. Um, they'd use them wrong. They'd put them on their chins. But, all, you know, all you need to do to combat that is a public information campaign, which is what you need to do anyway to get people to wear masks. I mean, this didn't, it wasn't inevitable. This virus um, did not need to hit in the way it did. Decisions could have been made earlier, but, you know, national leaders just did not face up to the f- fact of what was happening early enough. Naomi O'Leary is Europe correspondent for the Irish Times. What does the sports department of a newspaper do when there is no sport? Malachi Clerken and his colleagues have been finding out. This all happened at the start of March, or end of February, start of March. We were in the middle of the Six Nations and it was the, I guess, the highest profile thing to go by the wayside with the Italy game in the Aviva was called off. Because a very large number of people would be travelling from what is now an affected region. Uh, so my department some level, or low level of outrage or hindsight, uh, the Italian fans weren't stopped coming to, to Ireland. Whether that made a difference or not, nobody's ever been particularly clear. All across the world, that was when stuff started closing down. Breaking news here on CBS Sports HQ and it is monster news. The NBA has suspended the season. Golf fans, the news we've been dreading is here. The Masters has officially been postponed. Last remnants of sporting activity here in Ireland disappearing for the next while at least following the Taoiseach's announcement yesterday of new stringent measures was pretty much the first thing to go. It was the first thing that globally would work as a, as a sort of a sign of how serious the whole thing was becoming all across the world. Here we are four months later and it's starting to, to creak and crank into, into gear, but uh, we're a long way from normality. No, you're not imagining things. It is the sports news, except we don't have any news for you, so we're going to indulge in some sheer nostalgia. Isn't that right, Darren Frell? 100% Gavin. Who needs news when we've got... Losing sport fairly made the job more interesting, put it that way. We didn't stop reporting on sport in the paper, which meant that we had to magic up four, five, and now six pages of sport every day, even though there was no sport on. The failsafe for all sporting outlets, all media outlets, when it came to sport through the lockdown, were was some level of nostalgia. So we did a series of, we started off with all the writers writing about their favourite sporting moment that they had been at. Uh, we went on to different series. When there's no sport on, you are sort of, 
you're almost released from the tyranny of the fixture list. You're not beholden to whatever is happening that weekend or that evening or whatever. Every day there's a page of the paper made up of race cards uh, from England and Ireland. Now, for three months there was no racing. So that space had to be filled by something that just wouldn't be there normally. So to take it for instance, uh, when Black Lives Matter happened, I looked around for something to, to write about in that realm. And I came across a blog by the Olympic long jump champion. Uh, she's an American woman called Tiana Bartoletta. Bartoletta then. Oh, that's big. That's very big. Absolutely superb Bartoletta. Uh, and her blog was about being black in America. And I sent her a, a, a DM on Twitter and asked her for an interview. And she gave me this really interesting interview. We got a full page for it. Me, personally, there would be no way I would be have the time uh, or space to write a story like that, to even go chasing a story like that, because we would be in the middle of the GAA Championship, everything would be going full pelt, you'd be writing about the games that were coming up that weekend or the games that had happened the weekend before, whereas now there was time, there was space, there was any amount of space. It, it sort of sounds like you'd like things to maybe stay a bit that way, uh, whenever the full calendar of sports that you have to cover comes back. It's going to be really interesting when sport comes back uh, to the level that it was before. And it's going to be really interesting the way we choose to cover it. And we've been talking about this a lot through it. You know, we have had real conversations about this, about should we be so tied to the fixture list? Should we be so tied to the calendar? There's no getting away from the fact that when big events are on, it is our job to cover them. Absolutely. It's our job to make them interesting, to find interesting angles on them. But I guess it comes down to then deciding, like, what is a big event? Do we just cover them for the sake of covering them? Do we do we lack the imagination to forego not the big events, but maybe some of the very boring press conferences that go on ahead of them? The teams don't like doing them. The press don't like covering them, but they are the half a loaf that we go with because it's better than no bread. We've had three, nearly four months now of no bread and we survived. So maybe maybe we need to think. We definitely need to think. There's no maybe about it. We definitely need to think uh, differently. Sport itself has already changed massively. Um, when you look around, here we are in early July, almost mid-July, uh, when I was sitting down in sort of mid-March, early April, wondering how the rest of the year, the sporting year, was going to pan out, I absolutely presumed that by mid-July, the big TV sports would have sorted themselves out. And what I what I mean by that is I am still amazed that the NBA season, for instance, in America, they still haven't got it up and running again. And even this week, they're talking about uh, running into more problems, uh, getting things up and going. So ju- that's just one example of how sport has totally changed. You know, um, I remember writing a column in or around April where, where I made the point that organized sport 
is, when you think about it, is basically a sign of a settled society. You know, this is, if society isn't settled, then organised sport can't happen. It's the, it's the only, it, it is just a sign that everything is going fine and everything is not going fine yet. At the minute, the sporting calendar for the end of the year is absolutely jam-packed. Um, you know, there's a weekend in November, let's say, when there's the Connacht football final, the Ulster football final, the US Masters and rugby international between Ireland and Australia in the Aviva, among whatever else, among the Premier League, among whatever else is going on worldwide. I would be surprised if we get to that middle weekend in November and all of those things are still standing. You know, uh, it's going it's going to take very little to cancel sporting events. A number of GA clubs have been dealing with positive tests for COVID-19 or players who've had close contact with someone who has the virus within their squads in recent days, with training suspended in some clubs. It's going to take an awful long time to, to, to get back to, to any sense of normality. When, when you're able to tell people it's okay to go back to doing sport the way you used to, that's when we know that, that life is back to some sort of normality. That was sports writer Malachi Clerken. To wrap up, I'm joined by health editor Paul Cullen. Paul, it's been a roller coaster for you in the last four months. One of the things we became a little obsessed with was our performance versus our international peers, how well or badly we were doing on a whole range of indicators, cases, deaths, contact tracing, testing and so on. What's your analysis on how we really did? There's been a lot of talk about this over the last few months and a lot of self-analysis, I suppose. Um, we seem to feel that we've done well. There's a lot of pride in our performance. Um, you could see it in the reaction when Tony Hullohan stepped down from his job. But actually, when you look at the figures, a lot of people died relative to our population. And um, we had other failings as well, such as a lack of testing for a long while until it got up and running. So it's a strange sort of situation. I find it hard myself. Um, you know, are you a half a glass half empty or a glass half full type person? Um, are you as a journalist being hypercritical or overcritical of our performance? Um, I'm left with a, a slightly uneasy feeling that we really haven't done as well as we might have because we did start late we were one of the later countries in Europe to have a case. So therefore, we could learn from the experiences of other countries. And we did do a lot of the right things, uh, listen to the scientists, set up a coherent structure to deal with the problem. Uh, and yet something, you know, in the crisis, and it was a huge crisis from mid, mid-March to mid, probably the end of April, um, in that sort of panicky time, some things went wrong. And you can see, of course, what went wrong, because when you look at the figures, um, we know that so many of our, our deaths were of old people. And so many of those deaths of old people were in nursing homes or other kind of care homes. In fact, we have one of the highest proportion of uh, of, of, of nursing home and care home deaths of, of, of many countries internationally. So that is being investigated. But I think we probably need a wider 
a quick examination of how we've done um, by somebody external to the to the system or outside the country, to, 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 because it really isn't clear. There are there there are lessons I think to be learned, and I don't think I think there's been a tendency um, at the higher levels uh, when qu- when the questions come in to. Uh, to be defensive and to buttress arguments in favour of, of saying that we performed well. And I think we need a, a, an honest broker, somebody outside the system to run the rule over, not, not in a massive way, not no massive inquiry uh, or, or tribunal or anything like that, but just to run the rule over us and see how have we done? Um, could we have done better? And in what ways did we perhaps perform uh, just not as well? Because the simple fact is, more people died than needed to have died. It was a period, Paul, of many lows. What were those low points in in your mind? Uh, on a repeated basis, you'd think as this thing unfolded, you'd think, ah, it won't be that bad. Yeah, no, we'll get over it. It'll go away just like the flu goes away. And every few days or every week when when the week, when you know things got a little bit quieter and I sat down and I read up about the latest science, it was profoundly depressing because the messages were clear that were coming that um, that this virus was different, that it was highly transmissible. And then later, of course, we learned that it was transmissible before symptoms showed. Um, and it, it was particularly pernicious amongst sections of the population, mostly older people. So it you know, it was that that was that was a low point, I think, um, realizing that there was no happy ending uh, to the story. And another one was the uh, number. Of, well, I got a lot of mail during this. Uh, I mean, that was a good thing. It was, you know, uh, unprecedented levels of uh, communication from readers. But many of them were so sad. People who had lost uh, loved ones, people who couldn't visit loved ones who were in cocooning. Um, but in particular, people who fell, who had the misfortune to fall sick during these few months and needed urgent med- medical treatment and ended up contracting the virus through no fault of their own or passing it on to family members who were entirely entirely blameless, staying at home, following all the regulations, but the virus followed them into their homes and and finished them off. And I, I, I just found that inc- heart-wrenchingly sad. Did anything surprise you about the whole thing? Well, if you go back to what I was saying earlier, I mean, we did a lot of the right things and yet we didn't get the result that I thought we merited um, because I suppose it goes back to the nursing homes because um, uh, the virus got into the nursing homes and we're not clear exactly at this stage just quite that why that was, we, we, you know, to, to what level PPE was a factor or movement of staff or failure uh, to recognise the warning signs. But I mean, I think that was uh, the surprise and the disappointment. Um, I was resistant in many ways. Uh, you know, I, I have taken my cue from the World Health Organization. And unfortunately, the World Health Organization seems to be now in the minority view in many ways, in, in scientifically, in terms of re- being slow to recognize issues such as uh, asymptomatic transmission or the use of uh, the, 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 ver- the value of wearing masks and so on. And now about aerosol transmission. Um, so uh, repeatedly, this disease has thrown up surprises on, on the scientific level. Have to say the jury's still out. A lot of the studies that have been done, they haven't been peer reviewed or they've been done in experimentally in a lab. So it, it has surprised me, actually, given the focus internationally on this, 
that we haven't had more conclusive uh, research uh, which has nailed this virus down and told us how, it's, how, it, how it actually is succeeding in transmitting so much. What about second and subsequent waves? Are we kidding ourselves now in thinking that we have all but beaten this? Yeah, so there's two poles there. There, On the one hand, there are people who've gone back to normal uh, who think it's all past and are not particularly worried about this. On the other hand, there are experts who say we need to crush the curve, we need to continue with the lockdown um, and restrictions and improve our our restrictions on foreign travel and quarantine uh, in the hope of eliminating the virus completely. Um, But I actually think that um, our public health leaders are leading us down probably the correct path, which is somewhere in between. Um, We've managed to uh, lift our restrictions now for two months and we're still only getting a score of, of new cases at most every day. Um, yes, there's been a slight increase, but we've done really well on that. So I think, um, you know, talk of second waves and multiple waves, it will go up again. But it, I, don't th- I honestly don't think that we'll ever see what we saw at the start of this year again. I hope we don't. I could be wrong. The winter presents new challenges. Uh, flu, etc., in combination with this virus. But I honestly think we know our enemy and I think we're able to handle it. And we recognise, of course, the need to get things back to, you know, some kind of normal and to get the economy going again. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think that we're trying to learn, and I think this is correct, um, we're trying to learn from other countries. Oh, right through this crisis, we've been trying to use the few weeks advantage we've had by the fact that the virus came a bit late, later to us and rose later with us. Um, we've been trying to learn what, ha- what has happened in other countries and how we can apply that here to avoid the mistakes that were made there. So we're watching closely. At this stage, we're watching other countries. We see it raging through Brazil and the United States and so on. But we also see in Europe that uh, European countries, although they've seen increases in the last few weeks, most of them seem to be managing But obviously, we don't know how that story is going to finish. We feel profoundly changed by this experience. But what do you see as the things that will change permanently for us? I suppose someday we'll have a vaccine. Could be next year, could be five years time. Someday there'll be a sufficient herd immunity and we'll stop worrying. Most of us will stop worrying. Um, I don't see that happening all that soon. So in the medium term, we're stuck with this and the life that we have. In the medium term, we're stuck with social distancing, not shaking hands, not hugging and kissing, um, that kind of reserve that goes against uh, all our nature. But social distancing and that reserve is going to stay for quite some time. But other things will come, will, will get back. The shops have opened and will stay open. Um, we're going to obviously live our, much more of our lives, even more of our lives online. And uh, we're going to be different people as a result of this experience. Paul, thanks very much. Thanks to Malachi, Naomi, Simon and Jennifer. This episode was produced by Declan Conan and Suzanne Brennan. Thanks for listening and stay safe.